Hello, guys, and welcome to Ill-Natured Podcast. This is Michelle. And I'm Alyssa. Glad to be back in your ears. Welcome back. Welcome Hello. back. Part two, right? Part two of Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Ugh. So if you he haven't sucks. listened to part one from last week, go Stop back right and, listen, and listen. Um, because there's a lot of backstory. You know, we're gonna be bringing up a few things that he's done in his past, and it's just kind of pertinent to go listen to it. You need so, to listen to it first. Period. That's why it's called part one. Exactly. So, we're just going to jump right back in um, from where we left off. Like I said, they found Robin Samso's body. Um, she was 12. She was 12 years old, and they found her on July 10th. And this was in California. Well, technically, they found her on July 2nd, but she wasn't identified. That's right. All of that until days later. Yes, this was in California. This was Huntington Beach. Yeah. Now, Detective Craig Roberson was at the Huntington Beach Police Department, and he started his investigation after um, her body was identified. Mm. He questioned the witnesses, including um, Bridget, who was with Robin, um, the teens that Alcala had talked to the day before her disappearance, um, and all of them picked Alcala out of a uh, photo lineup. Mm-hmm. We know your face now. Yeah. And so then he started digging. They, you know, Craig Roberson started digging into Alcala's past when he started learning um, that he had served time for kidnapping and yeah. rape of a child. And then he broke po- probation by um, giving weed to a minor and then discovered that there was original charges that were kidnap and rape. Yeah. Um, the eight-year-old. Yeah. Forget about that baby angel. Uh. Roberson started to surveil Alcala. Um, now, this is in early July of um, 1979. Um, the night they started following Alcala, he went to his girlfriend's house. Um, and he walked in there and he was like, Hey, baby, what's up? Blah, blah, blah. I'm actually preparing to dip town. Um, hey. Yeah, so... Um, he was saying that he was preparing to move. He was hoping to get this studio out in Dallas, Texas. Um, and at first she was kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. And then he asked her to move with him. And she was very ecstatic and said that she would think about it. Um, and she was super excited for him. This is Elizabeth Steele. Yes. Um, he told her that in a couple of days that he was going to be going out to Dallas, Texas to, like, look for an apartment and, like, scout, you know, just for a few days or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, exactly three days later, though, he traveled the opposite direction to Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. And this whole purpose of this trip was for him to start renting a storage unit. Mm-hmm. Um, he later returned to L.A. like a day after and told Elizabeth that his Dallas trip went well and he was relocating there permanently. Um, he told her that their move date was set for July 24th. This is all happening fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, July 24th. 
So, 7 a.m. on July 24th, um, Alcala's planned leaving L.A. day. Mm-hmm. Started with him being woken up and arrested by police. Yes. Um, officers from the Huntington Beach Police Department surrounded Alcala's mother's home. Detective Roberson had a warrant for his arrest on suspicion for the murder of Robin Samso. There was another warrant that permitted officers to search the property and his car for possible evidence that related him to the crimes. Nice. Or the crime, excuse me. When Alcala wakes up, he notices all these cops in his bedroom. And even though he didn't really seem, like, shocked, he was um, just kind of dazed from being woken up so abruptly. Yeah. Uh, Detective Roberson told him to get dressed because he was being arrested for Robin's murder and he was going to the station to answer some questions. Mm-hmm. Alcala did not say a word and after getting clothes on, he was handcuffed and put in the back of a car and taken to the station. Other officers searched the ground after he left and took tons of boxes that contained photos and negatives, camera equipment, mm. undeveloped film, handcuffs, ropes, a bullwhip, a pair of pink panties, and a copy of a magazine that was called Young and Naked. Ugh. They also took a set of cane-cut knives that appeared to be the same kind. Um, I didn't really um Google that. I don't really know. I wonder if it's just a like a style. Yeah. Oh, I was also wondering if it was a metal, maybe. This is what it looks like. Okay. Serrated. It's got that really long handle. Yeah. Yeah. Long skinny knives. Oh. Cane cutter. Oh, never mind. They're all... I was thinking it was... Look. Look at that end. I think that's it. Like for cutting sugar cane. That's why they called it a cane cutter. It's got a flat... Well, you'll have to... You'll have to post a picture. I'll do more research and I'll post a picture. Yeah, for sure. I think it's Kane Cut. So, like, K-A-N-E-K-U-T. Oh, there's K's? Mm-hmm. Oh. That's what I was thinking. That's a horse of a different color there. Yeah. All right, move along. Anyways, so... They took this set of knives that appeared to be the same kind that, that was found in the woods with Robin's body, even though the set they found in the home seemed to be complete. Yeah. Um, they also searched his car and found the camera with a colorful strap that was similar to the kind that witnesses had said seen and noticed the carpet had been taken up recently. Before leaving the house, though, an officer spots the receipt for the storage locker in Seattle. And since Seattle's like a thousand miles away, it's like, um, why would you need a storage locker there? But, since it didn't have anything to do with Robin's case, he couldn't take it in as evidence. Mm. Although, that did not stop him from writing the information down. Nice. So, he couldn't take the receipt in, but he got the information at least. Alcala was booked in at the police department and claimed he was innocent, of course. Yeah. Um, he gave an alibi for the day that he that Robin was dis, you know had been abducted. And his sister also told police that Alcala was babysitting her children on June 19th, the day before. Mm -hmm. Um, So, if he wasn't on the beach June 19th, he wasn't on the beach June 20th. Because they believed that the man, the photographer that was on the beach, was the same man both days. Right. Um, 
Shortly after arriving at jail, Alcala was talking to his sister, unaware that the calls were being recorded, and he kept mentioning the storage locker in Seattle and being, like, super cryptic about it. Yep. So that set Detective Roberson off, and he booked a flight to Seattle. Nice. By July 26th, him and another officer were in Seattle at the storage unit, and they began going through it. They saw some boxes on one side of the unit stacked up and some, you know, had some uh, labels with, like, permanent marker on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at first they didn't really find anything, but one box had a small jewelry pouch. And in that pouch contained several pairs of earrings. Mm. And it was just now getting known to police that serial killers would collect trophies. trophies. And so they yeah. started to think, oh, maybe this, you know, these are his trophies. Yeah. Next, they saw, um, they were going through um, the pouch or whatever, and they saw a pair of small gold studs that appeared to have been altered or scratched in some way. Mm-hmm. So they took the pouch with them. And next, they saw a couple of boxes that contained over 1,000 photographs and negatives of young girls and women. Mm. One box was labeled, quote, Tally VA Rape, end <gasps> quote. And another was, quote, Ode to New York by John Berger, end quote. And so, they already knew that um, that was one of his aliases and a part of his past. So, these they took these... Um, was it spelled B-U? B-E. Oh, dang. I don't know why I wanted it to be B-U. I don't know. Have you ever heard anybody... Sorry. Whoa, Terry. That was a tangent there. It could have turned into one, let's keep it rolling. <laughs> that was real close. We saved your ears just now. Um, so, they took these in um, with them, too. And after leaving the storage unit, they were pretty pleased with what they had found for evidence, but began worrying that Rodney Alcala could be a serial killer. And they were, there could have been like many more victims they didn't know about, mm-hmm. which there was. Um, mm-hmm. They wondered like how many of these women in these photos, like, like I said, there was over a Her thousand, yeah. like how many of these were his victims? Like these all women were alone with him. Yeah. Um, when they got back to L.A., Detective Roberson was hoping Robin's mom would be able to identify any of the earrings. Mm. Um, so, in early August, she was looking at them and ran across the small gold studs and said, you know, these look like a pair that I own. Robin could have borrowed them. I'll go home and check my jewelry box. Yep. She goes home and she can't she can't find them. And she said, like, these, this is a good real possibility that these are mine. I mean, I can't 100% say for sure. That's right. Yeah. They sure look like Mine them. are gone. Well, July 28th, 1979, Alcala has his first court appearance. Mm-hmm. He wasn't this happy, confident, beaming guy that he was before. Um, yeah. He just kind of, he walks in shackled, just there, you know. Right. Chilling. Ugh. In his jumpsuit. Yeah. Or his suit or whatever he was wearing. Breathing up all these innocent folks there. Mm-hmm. The judge reads his chargings as kidnapping, lewd acts upon a child under the age of 14, robbery, and the murder of Robin Samso. Mm. Alcala pleads non-guilty, and he is sent back to prison where he waits for the trials on Monique Hoyt and Robin Samso. So, if you remember, he, he was on bail when this happened, when he kidnapped and killed Robin Samson. He was on bail for, for Monique's yeah. rape. And he did not kill Monique. That girl 
Click she's on her gay. Yeah. So, uh, he's waiting two trials. Um, during this time, police were trying to question Dana Crapa, but she told them that when she saw that man and the little girl, it was well before June 20th, and then when she saw pictures of both of them, she said that she had never seen them before. Mm-hmm. Then days later, her story changed again and said it was definitely the evening of June 21st that she saw the car and the two people, and these, you know, were not the first end of Dana Crapa's stories. I would have said Crapa. Sorry. Her, I saw her last name on the screen. I would have said Crapa for sure. Oh, show. Oh, for show. Okay, sorry. Last one. I um, shout out to the Dating Game Killer, the podcast, because that's the only reason I know how to pronounce it. So Nice. <laughs> Very nice. But um, she continued to change her stories, and I, I can't really understand why. Like, why? Yeah, but I'm um, real confused about Dana. We'll go into her. Or is it Donna? No, it's Dana mm-hmm. for sure. All right. I'm real confused, Dana. Well, we're going to kind of go into it a little bit more when we go into the trials and stuff. But, like, still not a good enough reason, in my opinion. But, anywho. Yeah. Um, Maybe she has anxiety. Well, yeah. I would be anxious, too, to keep a secret like that. Yeah, but why are you keeping the secret? Like, hey, does she know him? You think they hooked up? No, God, I hope not. Mm, I'm just saying. Um, well, it starts going around that Alcala is um, in prison, kind of like bragging and talking about the murder of Robin Samso and starts mm. confessing to other inmates, which puts his court-appointed lawyer in a difficult position. August 14th, his court-appointed lawyer, like I said, steps down and John Barnett gets the case. Oh, he stepped down. Yeah. Because he kept Brian. like, yeah, admitting to it. He's like, how am I going to win if you're admitting to the crime? You yeah. Dumb, dumb. Yeah. Ugh. So his new lawyer was John Barnett. He was granted a postponement of the trial so he could familiarize himself with the case. And this is when the defense planned on using Dana Cropper to their advantage. Um, oh. And, you know, her story continued to change, so this was one of the witnesses the prosecution hoped would help their case, but yeah. her ever-changing story was going to help Ugh. the defense's um, case. So, yes. dang. Yeah. Before the preliminary hearing, Crop admits to seeing a lot more than just a blue station wagon parked on the side of the road mm. and admitted to seeing a man and a little girl in the area where Robin's remains were found. So, when she first came to tell people what she saw, she just said she saw this blue station wagon. She never mentioned seeing Rodney. She never mentioned seeing Robin. It was just the blue station wagon. Okay. Now, she's adding to that story saying she did see a man and a little girl in the area where her remains were found. Still no mention of a dead body, though. Keep that in mind. Oh, my gosh. Dana. Yeah. So, she's giving you bits and pieces of the story, not at all at one time for some unknown reason. Yeah. In February of 1980, Detective Roberson got a call from a professor at a local college that said he had a student come to him and say she witnessed the beginning of a crime but didn't realize it was a crime when she had seen it. Mm-hmm. The student said she had suffered a nervous breakdown and quit her job, which is why she was in college now. Mm-hmm. She said she couldn't get this guilty feeling out of her mind, and she resisted going to the police when the professor suggested that she should. This student's name was Dana Crapo. Uh-huh. 
Detective Roberson told the professor that she needed to speak with Detective Art Dros. He was a lot more friendly and felt like that she would, yeah. he would be able to get more out of her yep. than yep. Robertson, Roberson could have. Yep. Um, so, they set up a meeting with Dros um, that he pretended to be a friend of the professor's and him and a psychologist made their way out to the school and met with Dana in an empty classroom. They listened as she told her story. She said she remembered seeing the station wagon because it was one that was very similar to her, so it stuck out in her mind. Mm. This is when she told them that she had seen a man by the vehicle, but then immediately said she couldn't be sure that it could have been a dream. Then she admitted that she went to the scene a few nights later and saw the decomposing body of a child. She and must a, do drugs. Something is going on for real. Yeah. Like, I... Yeah. Like, I really think, and like, she just had a crack in her mental state or something. Because, like, there was a lot, like, a lot going on. It's crazy. In another meeting later on, Detective Droves told her who he was and that, you know, she needed to speak with Detective Roberson. And then she changed her story again. Um, the date was June 20th. And this is when the information of her seeing a blonde child being led by a man was revealed. So, she added more onto the story saying... June 20th, I definitely saw this blue station wagon on the side of the road. I saw this long-haired guy leading, you know, this blonde-haired little girl down to this um, stream. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, Attorney Barnett started the battle with the prosecution to keep Alcala's earlier offenses out of his trial. They're totally relevant here. Golly. Well, exactly. Yeah. But he was confident that if the jury had no idea of what Alcala had done in his past, he would not be found guilty. Mm, that's sick. Just this guy lay his head down at night. Yeah. Well, he's probably dead. Right? I I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Yikes. But, anywho, so Barnett bad. knew they had witnesses that could say there was a man on the beach that looked like Alcala. And he knew that there was photos from his storage locker, but none of them were pictures of Robin. So, he also knew that their evidence wasn't good enough unless they had Dana Kroppa's testimony in mm -hmm. Alcala's record. Yeah. Barnett planned on arguing that the submission would cloud jurors' minds and automatically get Alcala a guilty verdict. That it would put bias in the jury's decision-making process. Well, exactly. It's right. very relevant, relevant to the case. Yes. Um, on the other hand, the prosecutor, Richard Farnell, knew that he had a like a an enormous job ahead of him trying to prove that Rodney Alcala was guilty in court. Like... Mm. Everyone knew it, but there was no, like, physical evidence on yep. Robin's body. There was no evidence in Rodney's car that Robin was ever there. Yep. Um, and their one witness they had was, had shifty stories. Right. Um, even the witnesses that saw Alcala on the beach the day of her abduction, no one actually saw her being kidnapped. Like, did he forcibly grab her and throw her in the car? Or was she willingly getting Wait, in right. the car? Um, so, you know, like, this all boiled down to Dana Kroppa's eyewitness testimony. Like, who was going to win this trial was going to be based on E. Kroppa's testimony. And if Alcala's 
previous offenses were going to be able to be presented in court. She was the only person that could put Alcala and Robin together in the place where Robin was found. Um, but like I said, this wasn't good for the prosecution because her story continued to change. And it made her oh look like gosh. an unreliable witness. Yeah. But, thankfully, on February 15th, Farnell found out that Judge Schwab ruled in favor of the prosecution. Nice. So Alcala's prior offenses were going to be allowed in court. Nice. This was like such a huge win for prosecution yeah. even before the trial started. So it's pretty, I mean, uh, yeah, that's awesome. So the first day of Alcala's trial, Marianne is in court. And this comes out later, but I just kind of want to give you like how close this guy was to death. I got this little detail from, um, the podcast I listened to, like I said, The Dating Game Killer. Great podcast by Wondery. Um, and while they're sitting here putting the scene together, they have this courtroom painted, you know. Yeah. She's on the side of the prosecution, obviously, because her right. daughter was murdered. That's right. She's, you know, sitting in this, the uh, benches or whatever. And she can look across the courtroom and she sees her daughter's murderer. <sighs> she slips her hand in her purse. And she puts her hand on a pistol. Nice. She has a pistol in her hand, in her possession. In the courthouse. In the courthouse. In the room. If she wanted to, she could have whipped that pistol out, shot him dead on the spot. Yeah. And watched him bleed out. Yeah. As everybody started freaking out. Yeah. So. Exciting. Later on, she remembers doing an interview telling um, people that she... You know, he had looked over her, looked over at her at first, and she wasn't even sure that he realized who she was. Yep. Um, and during this time, this first interaction, she felt calmed, knowing that he, that she could end his life at any moment, even though it would not be close to what fear that her baby felt. Hmm. She did stop herself from pulling that trigger. She stopped herself from doing what she so eagerly wanted to do that day. She told herself that he needed to suffer, that bleeding out from a gunshot wound was too fast of a punishment for what, she, for what he had done. True. She also said that she felt Robin with her that day and thought about her other children. Like, no. she couldn't go to jail. Like, what would mm -hmm. her other children do? You know? Mm. Yep. So, instead of shooting him dead, she just showed up to the courtroom every single day to watch his downfall and hoped that the prosecution and the jury would do their jobs. She vowed to herself that Alcala was not going to walk out of the prison a free man. That's so good. If, that's what I was about to say. If they let him off, I would definitely pull the trigger. Then that's I'm sorry. That's I'm, exactly what she said. That if the prosecution couldn't do their job, that pistol sure as hell would. That's right. And she was not going to let anyone else's child be taken away from them by this monster. Awesome. Um, so, we're going to start getting into, like, the court proceedings next. Mm -hmm. So, buckle up, because this is a kind of interesting way they fight each other in court. So, I kind of wanted to bring it up. Yeah. Farnell started opening statements with, um, Dana Kroppa's quivering story. He wanted to go ahead and put it out in the court. Yeah. That, you know, look, we know our star witness is kind of shaky. <laughs> but... She just likes to use drugs lightly on the weekends. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> he attributed it to the horror that she um, had seen that caused her mental breakdown. 
And he also said that she had major guilt for not speaking up sooner, but she did, in fact, see Rodney Alcala with Robin Samsa in the area where her remains were found. So she was, she was shamed. June 20th. Yeah, she, she was, was she was embarrassed that she did. It came to that point where, like, it's been so long now, it would probably make, make you look bad. Yeah, she was just, yeah. she just didn't know how to go about it, you know? Yeah. But, like, I honestly just want to take this as a speaking point right now and say that if you've ever witnessed a crime or, like, found out later you witnessed a crime or whatever, like, speak up. Like, police would rather know what happened than um, yeah. have you sitting in a corner being quiet because you're scared yeah. of repercussions. and investigate bones. You know? Folks die in the woods all the time. Sketchy. Yeah, but so, always look at the bones. Yeah, and report them. Yes. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember going... um soil sampling with McKay. Yeah. And we found some bones in a field, mm-hmm. like around here. Yeah. And I started freaking out and then we got a little closer and like realized it was like deer bones. But That's like right. I was like I was like, McKay, um are we about to be on the news. Okay. Wall is coming for us, baby, because oh, like you know they'll be here. Skirt. I'm saying like I was like, oh my gosh, we just like what if we just uncovered a missing body? And he was like, Alyssa, yeah. You've been That's doing so too much um ID channel watching. I'm like, dude, like, yeah, for real, man. I know. Anyways, it was See, animal my grandparents with the farm, they had a cow graveyard, and I still go exploring. And sometimes I make jewelry with the bones. For real, I check out all the bones. Yeah. Okay, we got a turtle head from the not the bottom <laughs> of the lake, but ooh, little sneeze. God bless you. Um, but it's a turtle skull. Nuts. I'll have to show you. It's, it's in Liam's room. God bless. Okay. On a shelf. Inspect bones, people. Yeah. Period. Okay, so, um, he also stated that Croppa watched Alcala walk Robin down, and then when she revisited the spot days later that she saw Robin's decomposing body. Farnell said that he has witnesses that place Alcala on the beach the day before and the day of Robin's disappearance, and that they were taking pictures of Robin just an hour before she went missing. Hmm. Rodney Alcala was most definitely the person who had kidnapped and murdered 12-year-old Robin Samso a year earlier. Now, of course, when it was the DA's turn, Barnett started his opening statements um, saying how Croppa had a nervous breakdown and it wasn't due to guilt, but due to because uh, due to police pressure. Mm-hmm. He said that the many different stories Croppa had told, um, like, were pressured on by the police. Mm-hmm. Like, she would tell a story and then, like, he, they would question her again until the story was a little bit closer to what they wanted uh, to hear and so, continued yeah. until, you know, like, she said that she did it until they stopped. Um, that they were going to get an answer and it was going to be the answer that they wanted to get, basically. Mm-hmm. And he said that, um, so, like, she lied this many times. Why should she be be believable now? Um, and he said that the state's case was so weak that the jury wouldn't struggle at all coming to a verdict that Rodney Alcala was going to be innocent. Now, during court, Alcala, like, never makes eye contact with jurors. Mm. And he's always just sitting and listening, like, almost as if the that, like, this person was on trial for murder and it wasn't him. Like, he was just, like, hanging out listening in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Dana Kropa is one of the first people that takes the stand, and the prosecution gets to question her first. Um, Farnell asked if she could remember where she was, and for a moment she hesitated, and people were kind of like, looking around like, did she like hear him? Like, you know, like. Like where she was like today? No, no, no like the okay, day Okay, I was like, wait, you're in the courtroom, Dana, let's hold it together. <laughs> You just got up there. <laughs> this is not been that bad. No, but I think she, they meant on like June 20th. Okay. Um, and she said that she was, you know, she finally started speaking. It was in a very like hushed, whispered voice. It was almost like they couldn't hear yeah, her. She like, has anxiety. Social, oh, real bad. Anxiety, whatever. Um, she said that she was driving on the Santa Anita Canyon Road mm-hmm. when she saw a blue station wagon on the side of the road. Farnell prompted her to continue, and that's when she said she saw a man with dark hair leading a girl with long blonde hair to the ravine. She said she left and went to the fire department. He asked why she didn't say anything for this long, and she replied by saying at first she didn't realize anything was going on. Like, all she could have, you know, it... That could have been related. You know, she didn't know. It wasn't... And it's not like he was dragging her Exactly, exactly. Um... He asked what happened the evening after, and she said that she saw the guy again standing by the car, um, and he was a little bit dirty, and noticed that the little girl wasn't um, there. Mm. She then tells the court how she found Robin's decomposing body, and then drove back to the station again, but since she was in a state of shock, she couldn't tell anybody what she had seen. Mm. Quote, do you see the man who was pushing the little girl on June 20th in the courtroom, end quote, Farnell asked. Croppa mm. says she couldn't be 100% sure, but someone resembling that man was in the room. And then he asked her where he was, and she said that he was sitting by Mr. Barnett. This is the first time she looked up since she was on the stand, and Alcala did not have a reaction at all. Mm. When it was the defense's turn to cross-examine Croppa, Barnett got hard to admit that her story was changing often and it changed in drastic ways. He also got her to say that she neglected to report vital evidence to police and noted that Kroppa wasn't sure of the date and time when she first reported, but now in court she's 100% sure. Like, he's like, that sounds a little fishy to me. Well, I mean, it kind of does. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and then, you know... Was she lying about finding the body or not? You know, at first she didn't say anything about it. And then it was like, all of a sudden, there's a dead body in the woods. And I saw it five days after people, it happened. I don't get the first impression that she's lying. She's just a little confused. Yeah, and a little stressed out, I'm thinking. Right. Um, and then he asked her how much of her testimony was a lie because of the police pressure. And how could she be sure... That the person she saw was his client, Rodney Alcala. Mm -hmm. She did agree that she'd only gotten a quick glance at the man and couldn't be sure if it was Alcala or not. And then he claimed police took advantage of her frail mental state and that she just wanted the questioning to stop. Uh Uh-uh, he wouldn't talk about my frail mental state. Well, I'm on the stand. Psych. Oh, no. This guy is, like, going hard. Yeah, that's a lot. Can you imagine? Yeah. The next day in court, they brought up his past um, known victims. So, 
They started out with the abduction and rape of eight-year-old Tally Shapiro. Yep. Then they started with the abduction of Julie J. that broke his parole. Mm-hmm. And then the abduction and rape of 15-year-old Monique Hoyt that, was, that he was actually still uh, awaiting trial for. Mm-hmm. Um, Farnell pointed out the pattern of all these victims being young girls and how they all were transported into Alcala's car. Um, the teens that Alcala talked to on the beach the day before Robin's disappearance pointed Alcala out and told their story in court. Some more teens that were in the area that had been, um, photographed by Alcala on the day of her disappearance were also, um, you know, telling their story and pointing Alcala out. Bridget, the friend that Robin was with, told um, her story and testified that Alcala was the man who had come up to them um, when the neighbor kind of, you know, shooed him away. And the neighbor was also in court verifying that it was Alcala as well. So they have plenty of eyewitnesses from the beach seeing Alcala there interacting with Robin. So, yeah. Um, And then... They meant they bring up the fact that after that encounter of Alcala taking Robin's picture, she went missing. Um, that same day in court, Marianne went on the stand to testify, and that's when Farnell introduced the gold studs into evidence and asked her about these earrings. Uh-huh. She said that they looked like a pair that she had owned, and Robin most definitely could have had them the day that she disappeared. Right. Um, you know, because she borrowed her uh, her jewelry a lot, um, and since Robin's disappearance, the earrings haven't been found either. So, um, it's a very good possibility. Yep. Uh, Farnell asks her if there's anything special about these earrings that could, you know, that she'd be able to tell them apart from just like another set. And she said that one time a piece of an earring broke off, so she had to trim the other one to match. Uh-huh. And the pair had similar cut marks to indicate that they were most likely the same pair. Mm. Ooh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So then Farnell calls the jailhouse inmates to testify about Alcala bragging yep. about murdering Robin Samso and putting her in his car and then burying mm-hmm. her bike where no one could ever find it. Um, after this, though, Barnett files a motion to dismiss on grounds the state has made its case, even though he knows that it will most likely be denied. Um, he also argued about Alcala's past being brought into evidence, even though the judge already allowed it. He still wanted to argue it. Shut up. And then he makes another motion to drop the kidnapping charge because there was no evidence that Robin was forced into the perched car. And if he was found guilty for murder and kidnapping, it would put the death penalty on the table. So, he knew most likely that Mm -hmm. Rodney was going to probably be found guilty. And he was trying to get the death penalty taken off in the process before he even, um, you know, did anything. Yeah. As expected, though, all of his emotions were denied. Awesome. But the charge for conducting a lewd act on a child was dropped since rape or molestation couldn't be determined based on how decomposed uh. her body was. This sort of helped him. Um, you know, Barnett would start by saying that this wouldn't uh, fit his MO, that, you know, if he, they 
if his past had to be brought into court, okay, well, he raped all of these girls. There's not, you know, uh, any evidence see. that rape was yep. done for Robin because her body was too decomposed. Yeah. Um, and then Barnett called Alcala's sister, Christy, to the stand to verify his alibi. And she testified, you know, she testified that Alcala was at her house when Crawford Baby said sitting. that she had seen him. Yeah. Right. And then his other sister, Marie, said that she had a record of a call and maintained that this call was from Alcala. And his girlfriend also provided phone records of several calls that were apparently from Alcala on the night of the 21st when Crawford said she had seen him in the woods the second time. Yeah. And remember, this is a big deal because we are in the uh, late seventies. No cell phones, right? So if he's calling her, he can't be in the woods because right, pay phones in the woods. Exactly. Um. Mm-hmm. So Barnett then calls a psychiatrist on the stand that says Cropper's testimony was unreliable based on her mental state, mm-hmm. and he concluded that the story she told was a lie. When Farnell could interrogate the psychiatrist, he suggested that he was paid for by the defense and undermined his authority in his um, opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, the psychiatrist responded that he was, quote, not anyone's whore, end quote. Oh, God bless America. Yeah, but I thought this was kind of interesting. When Farnell asked why he never testified on the side of the prosecution... The psychiatrist responded by saying, quote, he was too expensive, end quote. Mm. So, like, you're not being paid for by the defense, but you're too expensive for the prosecution? Mm -hmm. After a day of testimony, the defense rests its case, and Alcala never took the stand, which was not really a surprise to anyone. He never... um, A lot of people tell defendants for, like, murder trials to not testify to not right exactly because you never know what the human might say oh yeah like amber Heard's stupid self talking about um tipping off tmz i don't know if you guys been Uh -uh, watching this yeah it was in one of their um days in court i think a week or two ago and it was an old like they were it was an old like interview where they were interviewing her asking why how tmz got to the court or whatever and she said I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And then she said that she let it slip to TMZ and, you know. Oh, you were just randomly talking to TMZ on the phone? She's in it. Anyways, so, like, after the closing remarks, the jury failed to come to a verdict by the end of the first deliberation day. Um, So, by the second day of deliberation, the jury announced that it had made a verdict. Um, The first verdict was read aloud um, and it was murder using a deadly weapon. Mm. Rodney Alcala was guilty. Yes. Count of forcible kidnapping, guilty, yes. which put Rodney Alcala for the death penalty. Mm. And during the penalty phase, the jury only deliberated for four hours before coming to their conclusion. Nice. Judge Swab asked the clerk to read the verdict aloud, and he said, death. Nice. So, Woo-hoo. you're cheering now, but you're kind of be- you're gonna go through an emotional roller coaster in the Stop. next few minutes. Yeah, All right, give it to me. Um, Alcala was emotionless through this whole ordeal. Uh, he did not react to the death penalty. He did not react to being found guilty. He was just like it was like he wasn't there. Mm. Um, 
Prosecutor Farnell was reserved about the outcome, though, because no one had been put to death in California since 1967, and even warned that it was possible that Alcala could have his sentence commuted by the governor, which would put him at the possibility of parole in only 12 years. Stop it. Then, he speculated that not all of Alcala's crimes were known and was very confident in the fact that he believed Alcala was a serial killer and had more victims. Mm -hmm. Barnett agreed with the prosecutor that Alcala would not be put to death, and he was already starting the appeal process. Preventing Alcala's death was not his top priority, though, because he said Judge Schwab committed reversible error by allowing Alcala's previous crimes Mm -hmm. into court and was positive that the guilty verdict was going to be overturned. So confident. Yeah, so these are like interviews they're doing as they're coming out of the courtroom right after uh, Alcala's sentencing. Yeah. Mm. Um, during or after this, um, Alcala was sentenced to nine more years in prison for the rape of 15-year-old Monique Hoyt. Um, again, didn't seem really bothered by it because he was actually more worried about being sent to the gas chamber while he was sitting on death row. Ugh. Attorney Keith Monroe handled Alcala's appeals. Um, His first line of attack was the kidnapping conviction that made him eligible for the death penalty. He wanted to get the charge overturned and thought that um, would get Alcala off the death row and his sentence reduced to life in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, He focused on the point that it was never 100% without a shadow of a doubt confirmed that Alcala forced Robin into his car. There was no eyewitnesses of this abduction or anything, Mm -hmm. and the state's case was based on a jailhouse informant that Monroe would get a confession from saying it was all made up to get special treatment. Mm So, in 1981, Judge Philip Schwab, I don't know if these you know, if there's a relation there or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But, um, he denies the... I like to think that they are. Sorry. I think so, Father, too. son. Yeah, is what saying, okay, that's what I thought, okay, too. Okay, okay, go around okay. the same page. Uncle, nephew. I don't know. Uncle could nephew. be, but father, son is what it feels like to me. Um, so, anyways. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, he denies the appeal and the kidnapping conviction... And said the kidnapping conviction wasn't solely based on the informant's confessions. Mm -hmm. So Alcala was sent back to San Quentin to await execution. In prison, he began studying law because he wanted to help his attorneys with his defense. Oh, you're so smart. You're going to help them. Yeah, like Ted Bundy was representing himself. These cocky dudes. By August 1984, Alcala got word that the California Supreme Court ruled that the court did commit reversible error by allowing in Alcala's earlier convictions. Mm-hmm. They weren't a good example of a pattern because his earlier offenses were basic to any sexual crime, which means that they couldn't define a signature. Um, you know, just rape was just basic. That wasn't good enough detail for them to Ew. link the crimes, I guess. Yeah. The convictions were overturned and Alcala got a new trial. April 23rd, 1986 is when his second trial for Robin Samso's kidnap and murder started. During this trial, right before Kroppa was called to testify, she wanted to speak to the judge alone. She told him she had no memory at all from the first trial or anything that happened on June 20th or the subsequent days. She asked to be dismissed as a witness. The judge ruled she was too unstable to testify. Oh, now, I'm sorry for Dana. That sucks. Yeah. But it's sad. You know what I mean? Like, it sucks, but that's sad for her. Yeah. 
But luckily, the judge ruled um, to allow her earlier testimony from the first nice. trial to be read to Good. the jury. So Good. even though she wasn't going to to testify, what she saw is going to be read to the court. That's right. Good. Um, of course, the defense attorney argued that that was unfair and that the jury wouldn't be able to see how she said it because that was another part of it. Like, her being so hesitant and, like, unsure, um, you know, could have put doubt in the yeah. jury's mind. Um, but the judge did not change his mind. Um, internally throughout this, Rodney was so mad because he was like, how could anyone believe this? Like, the state didn't have enough evidence um and now Crawford's testimony was going to be able to be heard in court without being able to watch how she said it um so he was just pissed off yeah well get over it right suck it up buttercup yeah for sure may 24th was closing arguments and the jury deliberations took four days but on march 28th rodney alcala was again found guilty So, trial number two, guilty Guilty. again. You guilty. You guilty. Die. (laughs) Now die, please. And thank you. During the sentencing phase, Rodney Alcala came face to face with his first victim. Tally Shapiro was testifying for the first time. And she was there to confront her attacker. Yes. Alcala pleaded for mercy and said uh-uh. he was absolutely harm- harmless, bringing up his 13 years as a model prisoner, stating he shouldn't have to die for something he didn't do because he still maintained that he was innocent. What? His mother then got in, you know, got up there and told the court that she believed in her son's innocence and hoped that they could find it in her heart, in their hearts, to spare the uh-uh. life of her child. She has to know he he that whenever the script got flipped when he got back from the army. She has to know that he is capable. Yeah. Come on, Mom. And there's way too much evidence here. Yeah. Anyways, after one day, one year to the day, or one year Mm -hmm. after Robin went missing on June 20th, they sentenced Alcala to death again. Nice. Now, flash forward to April of 1992. After 25 years, there was someone finally executed in the state of California. And this execution would worry Alcala. Oh, Um, I was hoping it was him. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. Anyways. um, No, it was not him. Um, It was another inmate. Um, He was actually in prison for brutally murdering two teenage boys. Mm. Um, He died by gas chamber. I and so the f- gas and folks in 92. <clears throat> 92. Dang. Okay. Harsh. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I'm sure Get he deserved after it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that worried Alcala because he was kind of resting in the fact that no one had been put right. in California in so long. And then yep. bam, blam, here you go. Yep. Uh, the, Sim- the Supreme Court of California said Alcala's death sentence would stand. Um, so after this, Alcala wrote a book called You, the Jury, and he would write his innocence in this book and told the readers to decide for themselves if he was convicted correctly. Um, so he kind of like put the rundown on the whole trial, all the evidence, all that, and told them to decide for themselves and to, uh, 
petition for Alcala to get a new trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book was sold for $24.99. And I don't know how many books sold. I thought you were about to say you bought it. Oh my god, no. Ew. I don't even know how much it's selling right now. But no, I did not buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, It's just out there. And I don't know what the funds went to, honestly. So Do his pocket! For sure. Yeah. So, April 30th, 2001... His guilty verdict was overturned yet again. Oh my god! On the basis that the defense counsel couldn't cross-examine the prosecution's star witness, Dana Crapa. <sighs> Rodney Alcala was granted yet another trial. What? And if he couldn't be retried within the next 120 days, he was going to have to be set free. Excuse me? You heard me. Stop it. Yeah. What? So they have a rush trial in like four months. Oh, my. Trial number three. Trial number you, three. For the exact same crime. Correct? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. But I'm going to have some good, interesting news for All you. All right. Give me something. Phew. In the spring of 2003, the district attorney, Matt Murphy, was preparing for Alcala's third trial when he got a interesting call from his boss. Uh-huh. Now, this is the good, good, interesting news. Um, so, his boss was telling him that there was a law passed recently that allowed officials to collect DNA on prisoners and put them in a database to help solve old cases. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we all know what database this is. Yes. I think it's CODIS. I yes. believe that's what it's called. That so. is what it's called. Um, <laughs> DNA found on a cold case... Um, matched the DNA of Rodney Alcala. It was the murder of um, Georgia Wickstead, the um, RN who was murdered Mm -hmm. 26 years earlier. Wow, CODIS. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wait. I'm not done yet. Okay. I'm excited. Go, go, go. So, June of 2003, Alcala found out he was getting another case built against him for the murder of Georgia Wickstead back in 1977. DNA would continue to link him to three more crimes. Jill Barcombe, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parento. There were two Jills? Mm -hmm. This makes five known victims of Rodney Alcala, finally labeling him officially as a serial killer. And preventing him, I'm hoping, from getting out of prison. So, November 22nd, he enters court for his third arraignment for you know like his third trial yeah um and this is the arraignment for the four murders he was just linked to he is 62 years old now this is the picture we show or i'll show with you the long the hair yeah Ugh. he pleaded not guilty of course right um dna don't lie boo boo for show you know um so on january 13th 2006 they decided to combine the trials of the four murdered women with the murder of robin samso so they thought that you know five at one time yeah and the dna linking like there's no line the dna so right luckily it was allowed the defense immediately appealed it but the ruling stood that all five of these murder cases were going to be tried altogether. Mm. I'll call a position to represent himself in court. Uh, yeah, so we're, like I said, pulling oh, a Ted yes. Bundy here. So yeah. um, he was determined to not die by execution. Um, so they did allow him to represent himself in trial. 
March 25th, 2010. He did a shit job because he was found guilty of first-degree murder in um, all five murders. Nice. March 2nd is when the punishment phase began. Uh, he was sentenced to death one last time. Um, in this phase, they did allow victim impact statements from different fl- family members of each of the victims. So, like, uh, Marianne testified, you know, yeah. um, different friends what and family about members. Uh, I, she might have testified again in this one. Yeah. Um, I just don't really remember. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. Yet again, Alcala seemed unfazed, and he just went back to death row. Mm. January of 2011, he was indicted for the murders of Cornelia Criley and Ellen Hover. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, seven yep. victims. Um, he was linked to them by DNA as well. Mm-hmm. A year later, he pled guilty and was sentenced to 25 years in life. In September of 2016, he was charged with the 1977 murder of Christine Thornton in Wyoming. What? So this is somewhere else besides New yep. York and California. Uh-huh. In the middle, on the way. Yeah. Uh huh. How many more are there? Um, I don't know because this is the last one I have record of. Um, mm-hmm. After his conviction, police released 120 photos into the public, and a family member of Christine's actually recognized her and told police. So that's kind of how they connected him wow. with her. At 75 years old, his health was declining, and he was still sitting on death row. And by July 24th of 2021, he was 77 when Rodney Alcala died of natural causes while he was still awaiting execution. Wow. Well, he's had a long time to suffer. Hopefully he suffered. You know. Hopefully everybody loved him in prison. You know what I'm talking about. So that was the ending of serial killer Rodney Alcala. I did not know he had that many victims. I did not know. I know. Nuts. It's crazy. He's dead. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, but he just died last year. He's not even been a year that he's been dead. Isn't that insane? What? Yeah, you did say 2021. Dang. Well, at least he's gone now. What if we say rest in, not rest in peace. Rest in pain. Rest in pain. R.I.P. Biatch. Yes. Rodney Alcala. Rest in pain. Uh, so my sources for this episode um, was, like I said, the podcast, The Dating Game Killer by Wondery Media. Love mm-hmm. you guys. Chef's yes. Kisses. Yes. Uh, Wikipedia, Criminal Minds, Wiki, AllThat'sInteresting.com, Biography.com, Murderpedia.com, an LA Times article, or LA Times article, and, um, uh, Supreme Court case documents that I found on, like, Caselaw.com or something. So, yes. That is it for Serial Killer Rodney Alcala. Very interesting. I I wonder how many unsolved cases are his. Yeah. It's... Man. I bet there's a lot. I I mean, he did it for, what, 11 years? Mm -hmm. 11 years. And from... And they only got seven victims? to New York. Yeah. And there's already somebody in Wyoming. I mean, it's just a matter of time. There's no telling. Mm -hmm. And the ones we'll never know about. Some, yeah. some family will never get the closure of knowing and that yeah. horrible person. Uh, okay. Well, so, that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. We love you. Um, 
as always, uh, catch us on Instagram. At Ill Natured Pod. Uh, join the Facebook group and be cool. Ill Natured Podcast. Tweet us. At Ill Natured Pod. We have a TikTok, so, like, go boost those posts. At Ill Natured Pod. Yeah, and, um... Email, email list. I mean, why is email dying? <laughs> I know. Let's bring it back, friends. Illnaturedpod at yahoo.com if you want to do it. And like we tell you every single time, mm-hmm. uh, rate us, review us, subscribe, and listen every Tuesday, every sharpity Tuesday. sharp at midnight. That's right. Wake up with us. Do it. In the car. Yeah, people tell you, you know, that radio station is like, tell me something good. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? That was was nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, We're going to tell you something bad, but like, it's a good story, so listen to us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like it. All right, friends. We will be in your ears next week. Yeah. Come back. Please. And thank you. All right. Bye, friends. We love y'all for real. All right. Peace.